Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Tamar, I've got to admit, it blows my mind that people take time out of their day to listen to us talk. I know. Sometimes our family members do everything they can to avoid it. (laughs) So we're definitely grateful that everybody's tuning in. But we are definitely also sensitive to the fact that it is a lot of us. So today, we're going to shake things up. Today, we welcome our first Climavores guest. It's someone you're definitely going to want to hear, and not only because you're sick of just hearing us. So we, we, we took a page out of Cary Grant's book from Notorious, where he says, I think it was Notorious, where he says, the key to success is to start at the top. How old are you? Oh, don't even start. <laughs> No, you know, the premise of our show is that climate change is a gigantic story. And for years, it's been talked about almost entirely as an energy story. And almost all the action has been around energy, right? It's solar and wind and electric vehicles taking on coal and gas and oil. But one third of greenhouse gas emissions come from food and agriculture. And until recently, that's been the forgotten part of the climate story. Really, Climavores exists to talk about this issue. And our guest today is the guy who, more than anyone else, is in charge of doing something about this issue. And we are absolutely delighted to welcome Tom Vilsack, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. And he has been in this business for a long time. He has forgotten more about agriculture than most of us will ever know. He was the governor of Iowa for eight years, and then he uh, served as secretary of agriculture in the Obama administration for eight years, and now he's back working for President Biden. Now, obviously, climate change is a touchy topic in farm country. And while Secretary Vilsack has been talking for a long time about how important it is for agriculture to be part of the solution rather than the problem, I think he would probably agree that not much happened in that space during the Obama era. But now Washington is suddenly buzzing about climate-smart agriculture, and the secretary is really in the middle of the action. He just announced $3 billion in grants for climate-smart commodities, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we did a whole episode about, how it's sending USDA $20 billion for climate-smart projects. It's just incredible how quickly the food and climate issue has moved to the center of the plate. Seriously, Mike, I mean, who knew we would live to see the president of the United States mention cover crops in his first address to Congress? And and so this kind of focus is really exciting to those of us who are knee-deep in it. We think, eat, sleep, breathe this stuff. But we also have questions. We want to know exactly what the administration means by Climate Smart and whether the specific things that they're funding are going to meet those goals of climate smartness. And, you know, there are other issues, too. Climate isn't the only issue. There are environmental issues. There there are food insecurity issues. There are all kinds of things besides climate, and so we want to know about all of it. There's also the issue of why the Biden administration is continuing to carry water for the biofuels industry. (laughs) We can't. 
can't have an episode without Mike and his biofuel. That's my issue. <laughs> I'm not even wading into that. But I will welcome Secretary Tom Vilsack. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a USDA prime show about eating on a changing planet. All right, we're here with Secretary Tom Vilsack, who is our very first guest on Climavores. Uh, it's very exciting. Thanks so much for, for being with us, Secretary Vilsack. Glad to be with you. Uh, this is great for us because obviously we're a show about food and climate change, and you're kind of the, the czar of food and climate change. <laughs> when we last talked, you were agriculture secretary in the Obama administration, and you were very interested in climate change and the agriculture connection, but it didn't feel like everybody else was. Now you've got $3 billion for climate smart commodities, and you've got $20 billion for climate smart ag in the, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Tell us about what's changed. Well, I think there's a recognition uh, out in the countryside of uh, the impact of a changing climate. Uh, producers are seeing uh, droughts that are now lasting not a year or two, but potentially decades or more. They're seeing uh, ferocious uh, wildfires uh, that they haven't seen before in terms of intensity and duration. Uh, they're seeing the uh, storms, derechos, and things of that nature that occur that have never occurred before, have not, not occurred uh, with as much frequency as they are today. Floods are more significant. So uh, on the ground, producers are seeing this. That's number one. Number two, I think the market's changing. Uh, I think the market's sending a, a lot of signals um, that uh, those who uh, process food, those who are purchasing food, those who are retailing food, are very interested in being able to promote the notion that what they're selling, uh, what they're processing is not hurting the, the climate, it's actually helping the climate. And this is not just a domestic market uh, issue, it's very much an international market issue. So farmers who rely to a, a great extent on exports are equally sensitive to the fact that there needs to be uh, an effort here to create climate smart commodities, which means they need to embrace practices that work uh, and we need to know what works and we need to have the data behind it uh, to make sure that we can verify and quantify uh, the results. And that's it's very exciting. I mean, we we always talk about how with fossil fuels at this point, obviously there's a long way to go, but we kind of know what to do, right? <laughs> we just kind of, you know, we need clean energy and we need uh, clean electricity and we need to electrify everything. Even President Biden has spoken about climate smart agriculture, but I think there's really a lot of questions about what exactly that is. Um, how can agriculture be less of a problem and sort of more of the solution? And we're wondering, like, do you have a lot of specific practices in mind? Well, uh, the uh, NRCS, uh, the uh, National Conservation Resource Service, has identified r roughly 45 specific practices that fall within the rubric of, of climate smart uh, practices. Uh, cover crops, no-till, crop rotations, uh, rotational grazing, uh, a variety of irrigation systems, uh, uh, nutrient management systems. Uh, there are a variety of different ways to define uh, uh, and to identify what will be climate smart practices. What's missing uh, isn't so much the identification of a practice, it is the, uh, the result that occurs when you apply that practice to soil, to a farm, to a, a livestock operation. Uh, if you are, in fact, reducing methane, how much methane are you, in fact, reducing, or if you're capturing methane and converting it, uh, how much are you converting uh, uh, in, in a dairy operation, for example? So what we're trying to do 
is to create a, a series of, of uh, pilots um, and fairly extensive, I might say. All 50 states uh, now will be engaged. Producers in 50 states have an opportunity to participate. Um, 70 different projects have been identified. There'll be more projects identified later in the year under our small grant program. And we're really trying to use these pilots to identify not just the practices, but as importantly, what works and, and how, how extensive uh, are the results, uh, how significant are the results, uh, so that we can then funnel that uh, that understanding and, the, and those practices and those results into what you mentioned earlier, which is the Inflation Reduction Act and the conservation uh, investment that's uh, been made under that act, using those resources most wisely so that agriculture converts itself from uh, being perceived as a problem to being uh, understood as a solution. When I went through your list, the list of the grants in this first tranche of funding, one of the things that jumped out at me was what you were just talking about, the fact that you are measuring, you are looking for results that you can duplicate. Once this pilot, well, two questions, I guess. First of all, in the pilot, what happens when the the practice at hand doesn't seem to sequester carbon, as we're seeing with no-till, for example, which at first seemed to show a lot of promise for this and then didn't. So what happens when they don't work out? And second, once you have the results from the pilot, are you going to be duplicating the processes and paying farmers to duplicate these processes under the assumption that it's going to work? Or are you going to continue to measure each farmer's individual efforts? Well, I think the the answer to the second question isn't so much what the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture is going to do, it's what the marketplace is going to do. The whole purpose of these pilots is to essentially create a framework for climate-smart commodities, uh, commodities that are produced under certain circumstances with certain results that the marketplace can trust and, and verify so that they, in turn, can market and uh, explain to their consumer that what they're purchasing is helpful to the environment, not harmful. So I think the incentives um, and the financial reward, if you will, for doing these projects uh, and these practices over time is going to convert uh, from the government uh, to to the marketplace. And I think you'll see several of the projects in uh, this particular uh, pilot uh, set of projects are basically talking about that transition that's going to occur within the, the uh, in within the pilot. Uh, as results are developed, uh, what's going to happen is the money that is being provided as incentives uh, to fund the, the various practices will convert from being funded through the pilots to the marketplace. And so that, that, I think that's the that's the answer. Uh, what NRCS will do is it will continue, obviously, with cost share and making it a little bit easier for farmers to embrace those practices. But the real financial reward needs to be from the marketplace. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to establish a set of markets. We think uh, these pilots might help us establish somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 new market opportunities. The second market opportunity is uh, ecosystem services to the extent that there is a result as a result of water or biodiversity or carbon or whatever it might be. There may very well be someone who's willing to pay for that result uh, and essentially hire the farmer in a sense uh, by using those practices to get that result. So there's another income stream. And it's important to note that this is really important to note. This effort is not just about climate. It's also about creating opportunities for small and mid-sized farming operations to remain profitable. 
90, nearly 90% of farms in, the, in America today don't generate the majority of income for the farm family that's farming them. So, you know, we've got work to do to create more new and better markets so that those small and mid-sized producers can stay in business and do what they love to do without necessarily having to work two or three uh, additional jobs. So let me ask you specifically, because you mentioned there were 45 different uh, climate smart practices, and you mentioned what I think of as the big three, no-till, cover crops, um, and rotations. You also mentioned some that are, you mentioned cattle-specific. But if you're, you know, growing grain on 2,000 or 4,000 acres in the Midwest and you're not irrigated, um, and uh, what besides those three, no-till, cover crops, and, you know, you only have really a limited opportunity for rotations because, of course, there aren't small grains that have markets big enough to make serious inroads into the corn and soy acreage. What else is on the top of your list that are the most promising specific practices in that kind of situation? Well, I, I think the the challenge is, uh, you know, there's a uh, uh, one of the projects involves the pork industry where they're looking at ways in which they're, the feed that they're using uh, to feed uh, livestock will be uh, more climate friendly. Uh, so to the extent that you can incorporate, um, uh, you know, genetics, uh, whatever it might be, uh, so that farms, uh, you know, what you have is a circumstance where the root system of that particular crop, it, it becomes more diffuse. It goes out further, uh, which in which case you have the opportunity to store more carbon. Or you may take a look at the uh, sugar beet uh, project that that I, we announced in, in Colorado, where they are essentially taking the waste product from processing the sugar beet and injecting it back in the soil, uh, believing that that will, in fact, increase the carbon uh, capacity of that soil, uh, which allows you to improve the productivity of what, what today would be non-productive soil. So, I mean, again, there's just, uh, you know, I'm not the expert in terms of all 45 practices, but. You're uh, not? <laughs> What's the matter with you? Well, <laughs> we, we've got really good people that understand that. Uh, but the reality is we want, you know, we really have to learn more about this. We really have to learn exactly what works and how, how much it works. Um, you know, there's some really interesting uh, opportunities on the methane side. Uh, you know, the, the rice project down in Arkansas is an interesting one in terms of the way in which they uh, essentially utilize water to produce rice. And is there a, a better way to use it so that you actually reduce methane? Mm -hmm. Are there feed additives that you can use uh, in raising livestock that will reduce the amount of methanes produced? And then can you convert the, the methane that is produced into something more valuable and therefore uh, more climate friendly? Can you, um, uh, can you take agricultural waste uh, a manure from a dairy operation, and can you separate the water and the solids and retain the water so that in, in arid uh, climates uh, you don't uh, you don't have as much stress on the water uh, uh, as you do today? And can you then take the solids and produce a chemical, a material, a fabric, a fiber? Part of this will bleed into our effort to try to create a bioeconomy where we move away from uh, fossil fuel dependence for many of our materials to uh, a, a place where at least we balance. Uh, much of what we need for our economy with with a bio-based uh, renewable uh, resource that's not harmful to the environment. 
Mr. Secretary, I thought the uh, for that rice methane is a really excellent example of that's one where there's there's really good evidence that these you know if you through water management drawing down the you know in, in the flooded rice fields that you really can have a an effect on reducing methane and methane from rice fields is a huge problem. Um, but I think obviously like for other industries with you know if you're an industri- industrial polluter. Basically, there are regulations that just say, oh, if we want to reduce the amount of pollution, we just, you know, you can't pollute more than X. Um, but obviously, with with agriculture, it seems like we've chosen not to go that route. And when I spoke to Robert Bonney, um, he also talked about how it was very important for this to be voluntary, for this to be collaborative. Um, I know you are you are a governor of Iowa. We all understand that uh, farmers have a lot of a lot of political clout. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the political economy of you know why you don't, if you want to reduce methane, why not just force farmers to do that? Well, I think uh, a couple uh, responses to that. First of all, um, it's one thing if you have a, a factory which has a specific location, um, and you only have one or two or ten or fifteen. Uh, but that's not the case with agriculture. You have millions of farms. Uh, so uh, as you think about regulation, uh, the reality is it, it's not as easy as you might think to enforce a regulation. Uh, it, it, first of all, you have to get it in, you have to get it through the system and you have to get it through litigation. Uh, and that takes a long time. Uh, and I would use as an example, Waters of the U.S., a, a good example, uh, where we still don't have uh, clarity in terms of in terms of where that's headed. And so, to me, if we want more immediate results, if we want to actually learn what works and we want to basically get more farmers to participate, you've got to, you've got to figure out a way to make it so that they see the wisdom, uh, they see the, the financial benefit. There's risk involved, right? These folks are used to trying, or they're used to doing uh, farming a certain way. There's, as, as it was explained to me in Colorado, there's a, a level of predictability that farmers love because there's so much about what they do that's unpredictable in terms of the weather. So to the extent that they can replicate the, the, the predictability, uh, they're all for it. And so you come along and say, yeah, that's great, but we'd like you to change. We'd like you to mm, try this uh, new process. And they go, well, can you guarantee me that I'm going to have as much productivity? Can you guarantee me that I'm going to have, well, mm, we can't guarantee that, but we want you to spend more money uh, to embrace these practices because we think it will help. Well, that's a tough case to make, especially now. This is this is what most people realize about farming. In the best year we ever had, and I was secretary in 2013-14 from farm uh, farm income, best year we ever had in the history of the United States of America. Seventy-five percent of the farms in this country made less than ten thousand dollars, netted less than ten thousand dollars. In the best year ever, okay. Well, you only have a best year ever. Once in a while, you don't have a best year ever, every year. Only when you're ag secretary, I'm sure. Well, (laughs) you know, income's up again this year. So, uh, but the the point of this is it's the bottom line's tough. So when you're asking them uh, to, to, to accept a regulation, uh, farmers, unlike a business, uh, that industry that you talked about, what can they do if they, if they get regulated? Well, they can raise prices. All right. Or they can decide not to hire people or they can decide to defer the maintenance on the roof. Farmers have little control over what they get for what they grow. Uh, they play the market, they hedge, but, but they don't define the price for what they, somebody else defines the price. And they have no uh, negotiation power when it comes to inputs. 
So when you regulate, it goes directly to the bottom line. And in the best year ever, 75% make less than $10,000. There's not a lot of bottom line left. So if you really, really want adoption and you want this thing to proceed expeditiously, you essentially say to farmers, look, we understand there's a financial risk. We'll, we'll de-risk this process. We will give you the resources to try, try this out. And we guarantee you that once you see the benefit of, of better soil health, you're probably going to want to do this on your own. And if we can create a market that will reward you for that or create a, a, an alternative revenue stream that you don't have today, in addition to selling in, uh, your commodities, well, you might be really interested in, in wholesale adoption. And if you start doing it and your neighbor looks across the fence and, and he sees you're doing a little bit better financially than he is, you're buying that pickup truck or you're buying that combine and he's not, he's going to say, well, what are you doing that I'm not doing? And I think you'll see more rapid adoption. So I am extremely uh, sensitive to the concerns of farmers as far as profitability. I've had a small farm for a decade and we've had good years and we've had bad years. And there's a lot that's outside of our control. So we do try and control what's inside our control. But most of the farmers who are on the receiving end of the bulk of subsidy money by the USDA um, have incomes that are much higher than the $10,000 that you're looking at in the best year. Because, of course, that statistic is driven by a lot of very small farms um, that, for all kinds of reasons, are not profitable. But when we're talking about the farmers who are farming enough land to make a difference from a climate perspective, we're mostly talking about farmers who have a median income that is well above the American average. And I think this is why some consumers balk or taxpayers balk at taking money from Americans who make less and giving money to Americans who make more to fix a problem that is essentially of their making. And I'm sympathetic to that view too. What do you tell those taxpayers? Well, first of all, to be clear, when we talk about those folks who are making less than uh, $10,000, we're talking about people that have uh, sales of less than $350,000. Right. So this is not this is not the the backyard uh, farming operation that uh, you know some folks may have. This is actually you know farms that have the 3 400 acres. Okay? So it's the it's pretty much the average. Um, and and so let's be clear about that. Okay. There are some farmers obviously that make uh, 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 money and they do well. Uh, they don't necessarily control all the land in the United States. They control, uh, you know, a percentage of it, but that other 75% controls a lot of land. So if you're really going to make agriculture get to a net zero future, you've got to have those 75% of folks involved. So, so they need, they need, uh, assistance and help. Uh, you know, Americans, uh, have a benefit that they, that they sometimes take for granted. And in this day and age, at this point in time with inflation, they would probably say that they don't believe it. But the reality is they spend a lot less of their paycheck for food than virtually anybody else in the world. Uh, and part of the reason they do is because farmers are in incredibly efficient, but they're efficient in large part because they have a significant capital expenditure that's at risk. You know, a farmer, uh, unlike a lot of other businesses, um, you know, you can do everything right. You can do everything right. You could be the best farmer in the world, okay? Um, let me put it this way. Aaron Judge just hit his 60th home run yesterday. 
I saw that. <laughs> okay. Uh, against my team. I'm from Pittsburgh. So mm, not, not good. But anyway, he, that guy gets paid millions of dollars. But he only, he, you know, he only hits the ball successfully three out of 10 times. He fails 70% of the time. He gets paid millions and millions of dollars. Farmers can do everything right. They can be the Aaron judge of farming. And Mother Nature can decide, you know what? No crop this year. No. Been there. Zero. (laughs) Okay. So there's tremendous risk. They have a lot of resource at risk. And so if you want them to embrace uh, uh, climate smart practices, if you want them to, to be um, uh, aggressive in their advocacy with their fellow farmers for uh, embracing this new way, you, you, you have to put something on the table. Now, you can try to regulate them, but the reality is you're going to have a hard time getting it through. And if you get it through, how are you going to enforce it? It's funny. Tamar and I have uh, have gone back and forth on this a little bit. And I'm actually like, I, I mean, certainly when you look at the list and you're like, whoa, there's a program, there's a project for Archer Daniels Midland. There's a project for Cargill. There's a, uh, you know, there's a project for Tyson. Um, I'm actually like, I feel like, look, you, you know, it's sort of like you got to go hunting where the ducks are. You know, you got to go after the emissions where the emissions are. Um, if we're absolutely sure that this is going to reduce emissions, I guess one of the questions is, you know, if, uh, you know, the the, pro- the projects that fail, like, I mean, presumably they're not going to have to give the money back. Um, but how do we know that then those same types of projects are not going to be continued when you have $20 billion for uh, for the Inflation Reduction Act? That's fair. Um, uh, two things. One, uh, we're going to bring these folks together periodically in this process, and we're going to basically uh, re- have them report what's going on. Uh, so we'll be able to identify what works and what doesn't work, and we're going to be pretty transparent about that. And in terms of the taxpayer concerns, folks are going to know where the money was spent, how the money was spent, what kind of results, if any, we got. Um, and the marketplace is going to know that. And frankly, the marketplace is going to go, boy, that uh, rice thing, we like that. We, you know, we're, we're going to create the premium. We're going to create uh, some, some kind of incentive for that to continue. Uh, something else we don't like. We're not going to pay an incentive. We're not going to Okay, so the farmer's got a choice. Do I go and uh, adopt this new way of, of, of irrigating rice uh, that uh, somebody's willing to pay a little more for, or I, I qualify for an ecosystem service benefit and I save a lot, a lot of water, or do I continue to do what I'm doing and nobody really wants to pay me much for it and or anything? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I think farmers are pretty smart, and I think they're basically going to say, well, you know, we're going to try this new thing over here because we can make a little more money. Uh, and we can, or we can reduce our input costs. And I get that people have concerns about, but then I ask myself, okay, we're going to give, we're going to give um, consumers a $7,500 credit on electric vehicles. Okay. So you say, well, the consumer gets the benefit of that. Well, really do they, or is it Detroit that gets the benefit of it? And are we as concerned about providing help and assistance to the car companies, which we've done periodically, or do we really gripe that much about when the airlines have to get bailed out or any other major industry? We spend a tremendous amount of banking industry. We spend a tremendous amount of resource. Now, maybe people have some problems with that holistically and comprehensively and don't want anybody to have anything. That's fair. But I think it's a little bit disingenuous to, to, I'm not saying you all, but the folks who basically say, well, those farmers don't, you know, they, they shouldn't get subsidies. When in fact, a lot of businesses that people like and feel strongly about and are, you know, excited about, they get subsidized as well. 
One thing that we've spoken about in, in the past um, is some, some areas that we know reduce emissions, for example, uh, alternative proteins, reducing food waste, um, and uh, agricultural research. I know there was supposed to be $1.7 billion in, in uh, what was it, Build Back Better that didn't make it into here. Um, those all seem like kind of no-brainer things that we know we can reduce in emissions, and they didn't, they, right now they they don't have, uh, you know, you don't have the big checkbook for that. I'm wondering, you know, how, how can you push those as, as well? And is that part of the plan? Well, um, part of it has to do with the funding mechanism uh, for these programs. The, 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 the program that we use, the Commodity Credit Corporation, allows you to spend money when you help to create markets or facilitate markets or when you purchase commodities for distribution to food banks and schools. So it's all about markets. It's all about purchasing or creating new opportunities for the sale of, of commodities, okay? So when you talk about food waste, that doesn't fall into the CCC bucket. So we can't tap CCC for that purpose, which means we have to look at the regular budget for that purpose. Now, fortunately, um, uh, the American Rescue Plan uh, did provide resources uh, to strengthen the supply chain. Uh, and as we looked at uh, the interpretation of that, it was roughly $4 billion that was put into it. We felt that that was an opportunity to transform the food system. That was an opportunity for us to put resources behind uh, an organic transition assistance program to encourage more folks to think about transitioning to organic. We thought it was an appropriate use of resources to uh, expand uh, processing capacity. Uh, so small and mid-sized farmers have alternative markets and more comp competition and maybe get a better price and maybe consumers get more choice. Uh, we thought also that farm that food waste and loss should uh, receive uh, uh, resources. Uh, and so we have grants that have already gone out in terms of composting around uh, many of the urban agriculture centers that we've established recently. And we'll have an innovation fund uh, that will look at ways to, uh, to convert food waste. So there is money going into that issue. Uh, we started when I was secretary before a coalition with the EPA and a number of businesses, which has now grown to thousands of businesses, focused on strategies for for food loss and food waste. So that 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 work is under is is already uh, being undertaken. Um, on the research side, you know there are two things that we've done. One is that we've increased, and the president's requested an increase of the budget for research at USDA, and we also continue to fund uh, periodically through the Farm Bill. Uh, the uh, Foundation for Food and Agriculture, which is a sort of a public-private uh, way of leveraging resources for for, uh, uh, for for critical research. And I know that they're doing a lot of critical research on photosynthesis, ways in which we can figure out mm -hmm. more efficient ways to, uh, to produce food so we have less inputs. Uh, you know, in terms of alternative proteins, look, I, 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 my view of this is that we need it all. We need all kinds of protein. We need plant-based. We need... Uh, cell cultured we need uh, the livestock you know livestock industry we need them all why do we need them all because we've got a growing world population and that world population has got to get fed and uh you know in, in in a perfect world maybe there would be you know a way of producing enough plant protein to feed everybody but the reality is that's not going to happen so you need a balance and you need uh you need the availability of all those sources and so uh, there's no uh, there's no uh, choice here but i say to my livestock friends Guys, look, uh, first of all, there's going to be plenty of market opportunity for protein, number one. Number two, your goal uh, is to basically make your product more sustainable. And if you make it more sustainable, then you can compete very effectively with plant-based or cell-cultured cell uh, products, either by cost or by taste or, or whatever. 
Uh, so that's one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to equip these livestock producers with the technologies and techniques and the and the opportunities to 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 become more sustainable so that they can make the case to the consumer, hey, you can purchase my steak it, it, because it's you know it's climate friendly just in the same way that some other protein source may be. Mr. Secretary, I know you've been uh, close with President Biden for a long time, and I know you guys talk, um, and I'm sure you talk about climate and the the ag connection. I'm wondering, is he like, is he fired up about this stuff? What has he said about it to you? Well, he's, uh, you know, when I <laughs> when he called me uh, to ask me to take this job on, he he started the phone call by saying, "Hey, I've got some bad news for you," and I thought, well. You know, I've served in a cabinet before, and, and you know, I know there's a lot of competition for, for positions, and you know, and and in the White House, and so if there's not a place for a role for me, I, I'm fine with that. I'm just happy that he was elected. He said, "I want you to go back to ag," and he said, "You know, you know, you kept talking about uh, the conversion of of manure into a variety of different products and zero, you know, net zero uh, agriculture." He said, "Now I want you to I want you to deliver on that. I mean, that's your job. You go and deliver on that that stuff you made me talk about." 50 times uh, in, in events that we were together on, I want you to make it happen. And I think between the climate smart commodity effort that we've launched, the food system transformation effort, the food loss and waste effort, I think we are in fact moving the dial and I think we're transitioning the food system in this country. And I think we are creating a, a dynamic. I mean, if you look at the at the nature of the partnerships that are the people that are coming together, uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive opportunity for us to really create some synergy and some cohesion in our food system as opposed to us and them kind of things. And I, and I think um, I'm excited about that. And I will tell you, even folks who didn't get grants are talking about the fact that they, by virtue of the application they put together, they're forming partnerships and relationships and leveraging dollars that they might not have ever would have thought about. So I think you're going to see a, a lot of activity in this space within this program and outside of this program. And then we've got the small grant program that's going to be forthcoming. And we'll probably announce that sometime uh, late October, early November. Why? Because we're headed to Egypt, COP27. There's actually now going to be a day on agriculture at, at the COP meetings, long overdue, but it's going to happen. And there's going to be a greater emphasis on agriculture. And the United States is now going to be in a position to say, hey, you know what? We're taking some serious action here. We're putting resources behind this. That we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to let the world know about the results. This is not where we're going to try to, you know, uh, maintain, keep it secret. We're going to try to figure out ways in which we can help not just us, but the world and agriculture generally be more sustainable. And I think it puts us in a leadership position and that that's going to help us, I think, not only in terms of the COP meetings, but also in terms of the market. Um, you talked a lot about markets and commodity, a market specifically for commodity smart uh uh, for climate smart commodities, uh, but uh, uh, that implies that people are willing to pay a premium for climate smart commodities because that's how farmers are going to make a living doing this. When people are worried about food inflation in general, are these kinds of practices ultimately do they have to be reflected in slightly higher food prices? Because it's hard to see how getting a premium for these products plays out in any other way in the food supply. Well, uh, you know, I think that there are um, you know, two things, to, two responses to that question. First of all, I think if people, if people are given a choice, they, they can make that choice. And that, that's the interesting thing about food inflation. It's different than gas. Uh, when the gas prices go up, 
the choice you have is either driving your car or not driving it. Uh, when you go into a grocery store, if, if uh, something is you know, high, if eggs are high because of avian influenza and there's shortage of eggs, you can check, make the decision not to buy eggs and substitute it for something else. You've got lots of choices. You have literally 12,000 different choices in a grocery store, uh, the average grocery store. So you got a lot of choices and a lot of ways to minimize the consequence of that. But the bottom line is it's about choice. Uh, and then same way with organic. I mean, there are people that purchase organic and they know very well that it's a higher priced proposition, but they like it because they think it tastes better. They like it because they think it's healthier or whatever. All right. I think the same thing is going to be true here. Uh, if there is a higher priced component to this, and I'm not willing to necessarily concede that because I think there's a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, the farmers only get 18 or 16 cents of every food dollar. So I think there's potentially some some redistribution that could occur uh, in, in the food dollar that that uh, wouldn't necessarily at the end of the day hurt anybody, but it could help the farmers. So, but in any event, consumers will have choice. And the key here is obviously uh, making sure that they're well informed so they can make an informed choice. And that gets us into the whole issue of, uh, of labeling. And I think part of what we're going to see from this uh, is the evolution of how do you tell people, how do you, how do you educate people about the choices they have in a grocery store? Uh, Mr. Secretary, you know, uh, I think probably every time over the years we've spoken, I've, I've bugged you about this, so you had to know this was coming. <laughs> but uh, um, you guys are so fired up about climate change, um, reducing emissions in, in every part of the agricultural community, and yet biofuels. Um, there are so many studies showing, particularly the first-generation corn and soy biodiesel um, uh with their indirect effects, they just—they're basically still worse than fossil fuels. No, um, no. Well, I'm not willing to concede. I don't. Th you haven't been looking at the study, the recent studies I've been seeing. Uh, th that is not I don't believe that's accurate. Uh, happy to share the studies with you. I think the recent studies would reflect that it actually is beneficial when compared to to fossil fuels. But the you know one of the points that people don't often make about this issue is they go, well, you know, we need food. And you guys are taking, uh, you know, you're taking food. What people don't realize is the tr incredible productivity uh, that's taken place uh, on the same acre of land. Um, I used to practice law, uh, Scott County, uh, Winfield, Iowa, some of the best farmland in the country is located, was located in the county where I, I practice law. Farmers in that county, when I was practicing, probably planted 17,000 seeds per acre for corn. Today, that same farmer, same acre, they're, they're planting 30 to 40,000 seeds. So there's been tremendous pr productivity, number one. Number two, uh, there has been in enormous efficiencies that have taken place with reference to, to uh, you, you mentioned first generation. Well, we're probably on the third or fourth generation. And there's been amazing uh, uh, efficiencies in the, in the production of, uh, of these biofuels. And there are a series of co-products and byproducts that people never factor into the calculations. So there, there, there's a lot of response. That. Having said that, uh, you know, I, I think there is an opportunity on the biofuel side to have a, a more constructive conversation. You may or may not agree, but the, the reality is it's going to take a while before we have battery storage power or hydrogen power to be able to fly planes long distances. 
And so we have now a choice. Do, do, are you okay with just continuing to spew out the stuff that from the uh, industrial jet fuel? Or do you think that there's maybe a lower carbon uh, alternative with sustainable aviation fuel? I happen to think there's a lower carbon uh, alternative. So as we're developing hydro, uh, hydrogen power and planes and we, you know, batteries that are the size of skyscrapers that will fly planes for long distances, this is an alternative. This is an opportunity. And we're being asked by the by the airline industry and by the folks who make the, the jet engines to come up with that sustainable aviation fuel because they want to transition. So I think there is an opportunity here uh, for a, a better climate outcome with biofuels. Um, and I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the industry to continue to look for ways to be more efficient and to figure out more co-products and byproducts to make the case that it's not necessarily uh, more, more uh, environmentally uh, harmful than, than, uh, than oil. Tomorrow, you want to ask the last question? We've taken a lot of your time, Mr. Secretary. Do you think Americans will ever eat insects? Well, some Americans are already. <laughs> um, um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but I, I do know that Americans are going to have lots of choices. Um, I do know that we that, that we really do need to think about uh, innovation in food um, and, 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 in, and in recipes. I, I'm particularly interested and concerned about uh, school meals uh, as we try to create uh, more tasty and better nutrition in, for our children. We've got to be more creative and more innovative than we have been in terms of the way in which food is prepared in schools and the way in which uh, our, spices, herbs, and so forth are used to uh, replace the salt, the sugar, and so forth that we want to we want to reduce and, and get rid of. Um, and I really think the the, the uh, food industry needs to be challenged uh, to do a better job, to work with us. And again, we may have to buy, provide some resources to, to sort of prime the pump to get them thinking that way. But I, at the end of the day, our kids' health matters to the future of this country in a multitude of ways. And if we're serious about uh, our kids' well-being, then we need to get serious about school meals, and we need to have more uh, produced from scratch. We have to have schools better equipped to do that. We have to have better recipes. We have to have less, uh, you know, processing. Um, there's a combination of all those things, and and we need to figure out a way to, to get that done. I am a hundred percent with you on school meals, and Mike and I are really enthusiastic about the kinds of projects that are on the slate. We'll be watching to see how they pan out, and we'll be rooting for you from from the sidelines. Yeah, but I don't think it'll be crickets, but you know, it may be something else. <laughs> Thank you for your time today, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, and we we look forward to your next ten years as Agriculture Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get through this one. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Thanks so much. Well, you got to say, Tom Vilsack is a pro. I think this maybe wasn't his first interview ever. Yeah, it wasn't even his first interview with us. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, look, he he clearly, he cares a lot about climate change. He's obviously deeply committed to the Biden agenda. Um, I think it's also fair to say that, you know, if you want a revolution in agriculture, he's probably not the guy you hire, right? <laughs> and, well, if you want a revolution in agriculture, you probably don't get the top slot at the USDA. <laughs> and and he is totally committed to this, and we love that. So, okay, thinking about all the things he said, what did you like about what he told us? Well, look, I think, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into our uh, our skepticism and our questions. Oh, yeah, like but, biofuels. 
<laughs> among other things. But look, I think the main thing that's exciting is, as we mentioned, it's he's planting a flag, right? I've, I've always had this theory about, as you know, one of my other obsessions is Everglades restoration. And it's been popping around since, you know, the year 2000 and, you know, but Republicans, Democrats, business guys, environmentalists, everybody always says they're committed to restoring the Everglades. And I always say that it's really good when you have that kind of public commitment um, that they're going to fix the problem. Because then even if, you know, you don't like their tactics, even if their tactics don't work, the pressure just grows for them to fix it, for them to live up to their rhetoric. Um, I should say it hasn't really worked in the Everglades. We've been at it for, uh, what, now 22 years, and it's still a mess. But I like the idea that everybody's saying, like, we're going to make agriculture climate-friendly, because then at some point, people are going to say, hey, uh, you know, what's happening here? Why, is it, why isn't it climate-friendly yet? And, and so this kind of commitment is absolutely necessary and also absolutely not sufficient. Yeah. So... But yeah, the fact that he is planting his USDA flag on climate smart agriculture matters a whole lot. And one of the specifics that we talked about and, you know, we talked about when we did our episode that we uh, on the Inflation Reduction Act is for me, uh, the real one of the real positives is the focus on measurement and measuring Carbon sequestration is tricky because it can vary from area to area, even in the same field. It depends on the depth. It depends on the time of year. It depends on the weather conditions. So trying to establish that carbon is actually being sequestered is a very dicey proposition, and they are committing a lot of money to trying to do it. And so I'm going to say that's a big positive. Well, look, I... I because I can't let that pass without saying that I am really skeptical about their measurement. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure from people who are saying that they're storing carbon in the soils for USDA to kind of ratify their claims. And it's easy to do, right? You can always find carbon in the soil. They're, they're, it's really hard to say like, hey, you know, what did you do to get that carbon in the soil? Did you add more nutrients? Um, what would have happened if you didn't do what you were doing? Um, if you lose carbon in the soil, uh, does that take away? I just think there are a lot of questions that I want to see how they're measuring. And, and uh, you know that I agree with you on this. However, your original point was that, okay, they're saying this matters. And that's a necessary first step. They're doing about their commitment in general, but they're also doing it about measurement. They're saying it matters. And so, and they're putting money behind it. And so that was one of the things that I liked. But there must be something you like too. <laughs> well, we discussed it a little bit with Secretary Vilsack. Um, a perfect example is this idea that the, you know, methane from rice fields. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very specific project they've got. And and there's a ton of science where, you know, I'll, I'll oversimplify, but basically methane comes from flooded rice fields. And it's not perfect way to describe it, but the less flooding, the less methane. Mm -hmm. And they've put out this idea that, hey, you know, we are going to reward rice farmers who can reduce their methane. And they're also going to say, hey, like you figure out the best way to do it with your water management um, and there will be 
you know, incentives, there will be rewards if you can do it successfully. We're not going to tell you exactly how to do it. And that's an example, you know, it's not talking about like, oh, we hope you can store carbon in the soil. Like methane can be measured. Methane can be reduced. That's what, you know, that's why Uncle Sam should be paying farmers to uh, to do climate stuff. I totally agree that rice, rice methane is some of the low-hanging fruit here, and people are really doing great work figuring out how And it's to, huge. It's like yes, 8% it's of really agricultural big. emissions. It's like a gigantic. And if you look at those charts that show the carbon footprint of different foods, this is why rice is so much higher than other staple crops like, you know, corn and wheat and 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 legumes and and other kinds of grains. So totally with you on that. Um, I also liked the fact that Secretary Vilsack went out of his way to talk about small and medium farms, medium-sized farms. I am not anti-big farm. I think big farms are great. They can be super efficient. They can grow a lot of food with very few people. Um, But I want other kinds of opportunities for other kinds of farmers. I've had a small oyster farm for, you know, over a decade now. And I know a lot of small farmers. um, And in my travels as a Washington Post columnist, I've talked to a lot of farmers of different sizes. And historically, so many of the subsidies have gone straight to the biggest farmers. And I'm really glad to see focus on opportunities for small and medium farmers. Now, that's not necessarily a climate plus, but it is a plus for a diverse agricultural landscape and different opportunities at different scales for different people. I think that's that's fair. I mean, I, I guess if I'm going to be honest, like you don't care. I, I don't really <laughs> care who who gets the money. I care that it, the money works in reducing emissions. Um, but if you can do that out for small and medium sized farms, yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, Thank you, Mike. <laughs> uh, I, I like. I like that there's such a focus on forests and trees and planting trees and, you know, fire management. Um, I know that's something that uh, Secretary Vilsack paid a lot of attention to because some of these wildfires really started blowing up the the first time he was at USDA. Um, And I just think that focus, look, you know, we talk about how it's hard to measure you know, soil carbon, it's Mm -hmm. really easy to measure tree carbon. Um, (laughs) And so if they're committed, if they're really committed to planting trees, to preventing the burning of trees, um, I just think that's a really good focus. Um, And I'm not sure that in the past there's been that kind of intersection between the forest world and the climate world. So I'm psyched about that. And of course, you know I like it because trees are the all-purpose kumbaya provision. So, but another thing, and and he really led with this and he really emphasized this, that this whole package of subsidies is designed almost to be sort of self-limiting. And in the past, a lot of the subsidies that that we've seen, um, particularly for environmental issues, conservation, the conservation uh, platforms of the the Farm Bill, um, they work as long as the money keeps flowing. And then when there's no more money, the trees come down or the barriers come down and the crops get planted in that land again. And the point of this package of subsidies is to make a transition to a market-based system where taxpayers are not going to have to fund these carbon smart practices in perpetuity. The point is to find a market solution for these. And as you and I have talked many times, that's a good thing, but 
also a dangerous thing. Yeah. I mean, look, first of all, I am always skeptical when I hear about any agricultural program. Oh, this is just transitional. We're just giving the farmers a little bit of money for now. And just looking at the actual projects, I think when he's talking about markets, a huge part of what he's talking about is the idea that, you know, they will identify some sort of climate-friendly stuff for farmers to do, and that then these carbon markets um, will be essentially approved by the USDA to reward farmers for doing them. So it won't just be government money. It will be, you know, some of the, as we saw, some of these fledgling carbon markets are actually participating in some of these, some of these like $90 million pilot projects, which again is good if the practices that they end up getting the, you know, the seal of approval from USDA um, if they actually reduce emissions or actually store right. carbon. And this is this is why I keep harping on measurement, because here's a hill I will die on. If farmers are going to get carbon credits for sequestering carbon in soil, it has to be measured, not modeled. It has to be on the actual measurements that they find in their soil, and it can't just be based on practices because we know practices vary. Sometimes they sequester carbon in some places, and sometimes they don't in other places. Sometimes they do in some years, and they don't in other years. And this cannot be the road to just a whole bunch of bogus carbon credits. But even measuring it, again, it's sort of like, oh, look, I've got more carbon in my soil, but that's because I put more manure in the soil. And then where did you get the manure from, right? I'm just very skeptical. Maybe since I think we've segued into from what we like to what we're skeptical (laughs) about. I think we have. It's funny how easily that happens. Which was perhaps inevitable. Um, I think part of what I'm really skeptical about and is that you know, just talking to the secretary, who's a clearly a good guy and is really upfront about this stuff. But when you hear it, it's like, it's got to be voluntary. It's uh, it's got to be collaborative. Um, we see the we see the farmers; they're really bought in this time. And essentially, kind of what he's saying is that we're only going to have farmers do stuff they want to do, which I guess is okay if that stuff works. But the history of USDA is a little bit that like. What the farmers want to do is going to be ratified as working. And when you asked him, okay, well, you know, why don't we tackle this the way we tackle other industries rather than incentives? We have regulations. When we don't want pollution, we legislate against pollution. And his answer was basically, well, we can't regulate because the farmers don't want to be regulated and they have a lot of political clout. Right. Points for honesty, I guess. <laughs> and like if if we said, OK, well, why don't we regulate, say, uh, you know, miles per gallon regulations for vehicles. Well, the car companies don't really want to have that kind of regulation. Right. And there are and and there are so many cars, right? He said there are so many farmers. It's like, well, yeah, I know, but you know, that means there's there's so many farmers polluting. That makes a lot of pollution. And and so this is this is, I think, any journalist who's been in this space for a long time has a sense for how much political clout farmers and the Farm Bureau have in Congress. And 
And, you know, in some ways, this is a huge win for them, no matter what's in it, because they're not being required to restrict pollution in ways that other industries are. So, you know, we have to say, I have to say, I think that's a negative. Well, and I think, you know, going even beyond what we're they're, what we're not forcing them to do, right? I mean, I think if Part of the backdrop is this is obviously at some level, the status quo is not working, right? We have a problem. Um, You know, we want to fix the problem. And so how are we going to fix the problem? By giving boatloads of money to, you know, the American Soybean Association and the Dairy Association and Archer Daniels Midland and Tyson Foods. And, you know, again, I'm the guy who, you know, I don't care who we give the money to as long as it works. But I think it's, you know, it's a bit of a stretch to say we're just going to keep giving the money to the same people we've been giving it to and expect different results. And this goes back to the previous question about regulation. I mean, I actually checked JBS and Tyson. They're publicly held companies. They report profits. And Tyson's profits doubled during the pandemic as meat prices were going up. And so it's really hard for me to think about giving more taxpayer dollars to Tyson and other, you know, big companies, especially in the meat space, um, when they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Well, again, if there are going to be solutions, these eyes are going to have to be part of it. But I'm very suspicious of the idea that we're just going to throw money at them and they're going to fix the problem without any sort of hammer coming from the federal government. Like, is some, like, farm services agency agent, like, sitting in the middle of Arkansas going to be telling, you know, Tyson, like, oh, I don't think you're spending that money properly. I think you're just putting it in your pocket. Like, I'm not sure this is really set up. You know, it it might be that there's no other way to do this um, than just throw money at them. But, uh, like, it's, I'm certainly skeptical that that particular way is going to magically work. And, I, you know, I guess one of the conclusions here is, okay, well, the jury's out and we have to see how these things pan out. Um, but I don't know, maybe they should just put us in charge. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the kind of conclusion we get to every time. But we did, we did say, you know, we had an episode where we talked about kind of how to fix food and agriculture and climate. right? Right. And we put out a bunch of solutions that, you know, maybe they weren't that brilliant, but they work like, you know, with like alternative proteins, uh, with reducing food waste, with agricultural research to improve yields. Those are things that if they put a lot of money into it, you know, you're going to get lower emissions. And that's not what this is about. That's true. But like, I also want to point out, it's really easy to talk about those things. And it's really hard to walk the line and try and balance the various interests on all sides of these issues, which is why, you know, Tom Vilsack is the Secretary of Agriculture and we're, we're what, podcasters. <laughs> That's right. But look, he is a guy who's clearly committed to making this work. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody can get these big ag companies to, you know, try to come along for the ride, I think, you know, there's a reason why Joe Biden asked him to come back and do the same job the second time. Right. And and it's nice to see his commitment. It was great to hear his perspective. And it was awesome talking to someone who wasn't you. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And uh, we really do appreciate that he's willing to engage with a couple of nerdy, crank journalists like ourselves. <laughs> so we do thank you very much, Secretary Vilsack, and we hope we'll have you back uh, to see how all this works out. Climafors is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to know what you're thinking about agriculture, about the show, about ways to improve our food system. So give us a call. We're at 508-377-3449 or email us at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamara Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abawaje is the associate producer. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc do all the engineering. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. If you like us, help us grow, spread the word, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you have somebody else you think would like the show, please send them a link. And we'll be back again next week with a new episode.